the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones were dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, 
and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. As Tim said, we're returning to the culmination of our series in Ezekiel and our theme really has been life from death, life from death. And one of the things that I find makes the Bible so compelling is how perceptive it is about us, um, how it knows how weird we can be sometimes. That even when we're completely crushed, we can't just stop ourselves from being distracted or deluded by what's in front of our face. We see in verse 11 of our passage that God's people say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. They're in an utterly hopeless situation because they're trapped hundreds of miles away from home. And God himself had orchestrated the superpower, the Babylonians, to demolish their land and their capital city. But after this has happened, God opened the prophet Ezekiel's mouth to speak of certain hope of restoration. And even though this is exactly what God's people needed to hear, we see in chapter 33, verse 31, and it's at the top of your handout there. And God tells Ezekiel that the people will not listen to him. Chapter 33, verse 31. And they come to you as people come, and they will sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. Their heart is set on their gain. Instead of listening to God in their distress, they get distracted by all the opportunities that they have in Babylon, the buzzing international metropolis of its day, and the London of its day. And this really isn't at the same level at all, but some of you may have heard of the phenomenon called the quarter-life crisis, and some of you might be in the midst of one uh, right now. It generally involves people in their mid to late 20s um, realizing that all the optimistic dreams and plans they have for their life are not coming together. So you haven't changed the world like you wanted to change the world. Um, you haven't got the career you wanted. You haven't found the love of your life you wanted. And when that realization hits you um, really hard, uh, it feels like a ton of bricks. And there's a burgeoning industry uh, trying to help you out of that crisis uh, with books and podcasts. One I saw the other day was Smashed Avocado and the Quarter Life Crisis. I don't know how that will help you. Um, but there's generally two ways, two ways proposed to get out of this and to have personal gain in the midst of that crisis. And the first is to loosen up. And that is to chase uh, life experiences and to sort of find yourself. Uh, take a career sabbatical, uh, travel the world, hug a few grillers, um, or uh, buy a motorbike, uh, buy a motorhome, uh, loosen up, live free. And the second is to grow up, uh, grit your teeth, lower your expectations, 
but try and get a solid job, a solid income, get on the property ladder, and play the system, quietly provide for yourself and potentially a family in the future. Loosen up or grow up, um, motorbike or mortgage. Um, but either way, and don't think too deeply about your crisis, just maximize what's in front of your face. Set your heart on your gain. But what if in the midst of your crisis, God has something to say to you? What if he's offering something so much more and better than the gain you can see? And as we all know deep down, um, there's a much bigger crisis than not having the right grad job or the right girlfriend. Uh, it is coming to terms with our own mortality and morality. Do we have a philosophy of life that can cope with our death? And do we have a philosophy of life that can cope with meeting our maker after we die? Well, the vision in Ezekiel 37, uh, verse 1 to 14, is trying to wake us up and to make us listen, to stop us living for what's just in front of our face and to face up to reality. And God wants to stamp two things onto our, our metaphorical, uh, the eyeballs of our mind. First is that naturally, we are really in a hopeless situation. And secondly, and that there is real hope uh, in God's salvation. So firstly, um, we are really hopeless uh, when we're cut off from God. Now on the surface, our lives might look manageable, but we really have no hope if we're cut off from the living God. In verses 1 to 10 of chapter 37, we get the vision. And then in verses 11 to 14, we get the interpretation of that vision. And the first thing God wants us to know is that we are dead. Ezekiel in verse 1 is set in a valley, and the valley is full of bones. And verse 2, they are very dry. Now, you know on, um, well, I don't know really, but on TV they tell me that uh, on Mars, when they look for evidence of life, and they look for evidence of water, of moisture, as evidence of extraterrestrial life. Well, there's absolutely no sign of life in this valley. It is very dry, and there is no hope. And if we genuinely try and imagine this for a second, it is actually a horrible scene. This is an image of a mass grave or a genocide. This is a scene left in a Yazidi village after an ISIS attack, or in a Rwandan village after the genocide. And we're told in verse 11 that these bones are the people of Israel. Now that makes sense to those who have lost their lives in famine or fire or sword uh, in the Babylonian conquest. But these bones also represent those Israelites who are currently alive, um, exiles in Babylon. Even though they're alive, this vision says they are dead because they're cut off from God. Without God, they're living a zombie-like existence. And they could perhaps enjoy a few decades uh, in this new city. There are some world-renowned public gardens in Babylon, I hear. Uh, and there's a buzzing nightlife. And there's probably lots of good career opportunities. But there is no hope beyond that for them. Without God, um, to put it bluntly, um, they are on a conveyor belt to the crematorium. There might be some nice sights along the way. Um, but um, we're all going to the same place. Without being connected to the living God, the source of life, and we have no hope beyond the grave, and we are dead. But worse than that, and we're also defiled. Our moral state um, of us is sickening 
to a perfectly good God. Now, Ezekiel comes from a priestly lineage, uh, and a priest was strictly forbidden from coming into contact with bones or anything dead. They weren't even allowed to bury members of their extended family, only some of their very close family, and even then with very stringent rules. And this was all part of symbolizing how serious the ultimate cause of death is, which is sin, our rebellion against God. And Ezekiel being led amongst the bones uh, with a crunch here and a crunch there would be uh, a bit like leading Greta Thunberg through the middle of a monster truck rally or something like that. And with gratuitously large engines um, roaring away and fumes everywhere, what I imagine uh, is her worst nightmare. But naturally, uh, we think that if we fancy it, and we can just be pally with God, and of course he'd be delighted to shake our hand and to have us for a cup of tea. And we think because we come from a Christian culture, or maybe a Christian home, or maybe that we're just a relatively good person, that of course God um, wants us uh, on his team, as it were. But when we start waking up to reality, um, we know that is not the case. When I was 19 or 20, uh, a friend of mine who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus, um, he shared an epiphany he had with me. It had hit him very hard over uh, the course of a few weeks that he really wasn't a very good person. In fact, he'd made a password-protected document on his laptop where he'd listed all his major faults and all the worst things he'd ever done and his major defects in his character, the worst things about him. And I won't tell you the words he used um, to describe himself. But I bet his document wouldn't read entirely differently to mine, or dare I say, to yours. If you undertook that task objectively, um, would you give that password to someone else? The truth is that we're all hopelessly morally defiled before a perfectly good God. And the question is what we're going to do about it. Um, will we just bury that reality, uh, set our hearts on gain, or will we listen uh, to the real hope of God? But it gets one more stage uh, more hopeless before it gets more hopeful in a, in a minute or so. Um, that is, as well as being dead and defiled, um, this vision also tells us that we are condemned. God rightly uh, cannot tolerate our evil, just like he could not tolerate Israel's evil here. Notice in the vision that these bones are not the result uh, of, of death by natural causes. Israel did not decide to go on some sort of large national walk and suddenly, simultaneously, suffer a catastrophic cardiac arrest. Notice verse 9. Um, they are slain, they're described as slain. And unburied, scattered bones in the Bible, and in Ezekiel 6, for example, are a sign of God's judgment. The starting point of this vision is one of God's condemnation, or verse 11 has it, being cut off from God. God is justly angry at Israel for their evil, as he's justly angry at us for our evil. I'm sorry if no one's ever told you that before. But God would not be good um, if he tolerated our evil. This is Israel's state here without God, and this is our state without him, condemned. And the starting point of this vision is comprehensive in its picture of hopelessness. With all the symbolism of Israelites' history, 
we see dead, dry, defiled, and damned bodies in a valley in Babylon. It's probably the worst picture a priest like Ezekiel could possibly imagine under the judgment of God, living and uh, walking around Babylon or walking around London um, as the living dead. And I think the point of that all is that we need to hear that and we need to see this vision and have it stamped on our eyeballs, as it were, because it's so easy to live for gain. Even when the gullibility of our youth has passed and perhaps we begin to encounter real crises and hardships, when we really come face to face with our mortality and our morality, and God doesn't want us to set our hearts on silly things like motorbikes or mortgages, um, but to listen to him. And that's what he's trying to make us do. And we see the real hope we have in him uh, in the second half, our second point, real hope and um, life with Jesus. And this is God's hope for all people. And it starts with resurrection. Uh, these dead bones and become bodies and live We see that in verse five. It says, thus said the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this really is the reverse of kill it, cook it, eat it. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to to prepare um, your own meat you've to eaten, to skin, uh, to prepare it for cooking. It'll probably do us some good in educating us uh, about where our food comes on. And it'll do us some good in understanding what's happening here. Um, you get the ligaments, you get the tendons, then the bulk of the muscles uh, and the body, and then the skin. It's a vividly physical picture, isn't it? And it's hard to imagine what a valley full of bones a rattling would have sounded like but I imagine it's probably more like an earthquake uh, than maracas. And we see this as an image of new humanity or of new creation. You may know in Genesis 2, God formed the man and then breathed into him the breath of life. So here in a valley full of bones, uh, it's recreated. There are new bodies, then there's new breath. Now in the context of Ezekiel 34 to 37, as we've been looking at, um, this To begin with, there's a picture of national restoration, a valley full of dead bones. The dead nation of Israel uh, becomes an exceedingly great army in verse 10. But this restoration of God's people in verses 1 to 10 is said to be achieved by the individual resurrection of God's people in the interpretation in verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. The bones coming to life uh, in the vision is a metaphorical picture of the reality of resurrection that God is promising for his people from their individual graves. This is the real hope of God's people, the reversal of death and resurrection life. And if we're alive today, we have concrete evidence, a fact on the table of history to substantiate that claim. And that is what we've been thinking about this evening, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He took upon himself the death, defilement, and condemnation of God in his death on the cross. And he was resurrected on the third day as the first fruits, the down payment 
the ironclad guarantee that what God has done with him, he will do with all who trust in his son. He'll give them resurrection life. And it's an historical claim that has to be answered. Jesus' resurrection started a 2,000-year revolution and that continues to this day. If you listen to the rest of Rest Is History podcast, um, you'll know that no credible historian rejects that Jesus existed. And then you have to start with and deal with the fact that those closest to him were willing to suffer and die on his behalf because of the resurrection. And they weren't like suicide bombers, because if the resurrection wasn't true, they went through that, um, even though they knew it was a lie. People do die for what they believe in, but they don't tend to die for something they know isn't true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an investigatable fact on the table of history, and it gives real hope and certainty of the resurrection of all people to come. But even now, um, for God's people, um, resurrection life is not just something for the future. It is something that begins now and through regeneration. We are brought alive to know God now. And did you notice how God brought um, life to the bones in the vision? He prophesied to the bones in verse four, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And then he prophesied to the breath or the wind and the breath comes in verse nine. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live. Now that all seems a little bit strange um, until you realize that the word breath and wind are the same word as spirit. The word spirit is mentioned 10 times in these 14 verses. The resurrection life here is brought about by the spirit of God working with the word of God, which regenerates us as we respond to him. And from the start to the end of the Bible, the word of God is inextricably linked to the spirit of God. If I had understood this as a younger Christian, uh, this would have saved me a lot of confusion and a lot of waste of time. But you cannot separate the speech of God from the spirit of God. In Ezekiel here, you cannot separate Um, the wind of God from the word of God, which again, the very image of breath reinforces. And when you speak, um, you breathe. And I was going to say, um, you can't speak without breathing. But I did some research, um, which is obviously code for I googled it. And uh, apparently that is not technically true in a medical sense. So because um, all you need to speak is air to pass through your vocal cords, It doesn't necessarily have to come from your lungs. But I think for all intents and purposes, um, (laughs) you do need air to speak, so you do need breath. And I imagine you can't do that for very long without the help of your lungs. Uh, Anyway, the the point is uh, that wind and words, speech and spirit, are incredibly tightly linked. And Jesus says today, if we listen to his voice, um, we can live. So in John chapter 5, verse 25, he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If you don't yet know the Lord Jesus, today, by his spirit, through his word, um, could be your new creation birthday, as it were. If I can put it like this, if you've tasted something of God bringing life, um, it is super sweet knowing you've passed from death to life 
certainty of resurrection to come. It is a wonderful thing. But also as we look to God's word, as we listen to him, as he starts to bring something of that eternal life to us now, speaking um, personally anyway, listening to God in his word, it's helped me be more thankful in life, uh, to enjoy life more. He's guided me through some incredibly difficult times. He reassures me day by day about who I am, about what I'm meant to be doing, about where I'm going. And he's slowly, um, maybe people would say very slowly, shaping me into the contours of his life. And if you think that's not very impressive, um, you should have seen what I was like five years ago, ten years ago. Every day we have a choice to set our hearts on gain or to set our hearts on God, to look for hope from the world or to listen to hope in God's word. And it's slightly complicated and we have to think about it for ourselves in light of God's word because there's nothing wrong with lots in the world. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with a motorbike or a mortgage. Um, but the question is, what shapes our life and where does our hope really lie? What really excites us? God has spoken and he speaks life. And the question is, will we listen? There is real hope now in the regeneration that Jesus brings to us. And lastly, um, the climax of real hope is actually a relationship. Uh, it's a relationship with a person, uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes I think this can be hard to understand because when we don't know Jesus, um, knowing God is sometimes the last thing we think we want. But when we really do know Jesus, he is the last thing or the last person uh, we want to lose. I'm sorry we didn't have time to cover God's fourth speech about his salvation in verses 15 to 28. But let's just pick up the culmination and the climax of these words. Actually, the climax of this whole section, uh, starting in verse 27. The climax of God's promises here. God says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Perhaps the most precious gift of God uh, is the gift of his personal presence with us and God himself moving into our neighborhood. And we see a picture of what that looks like in the Gospels as God himself walked the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're experiencing that in part now and through his spirit dwelling in us. But when we've been bodily resurrected um, in his new creation, we'll know him by sight. And you can't give a full account of the Christian gospel without saying something of the real relationship um, that it offers with Jesus Christ. Last week, I was speaking to one of the guys from our Mandarin-speaking congregation, uh, who is from mainland, mainland China. Generously, he spoke to me in English. And he came to the UK to study in Bristol a few years ago. And he went along to an event uh, where he heard about Jesus because he was open to finding about anything, really. And he went to lots of different Christian uh, follow-up courses uh, to explore the Christian faith more. And he had a really good grasp of an outline of the gospel. But he hadn't yet decided to go with God and rather than gain. But like me, he was quite a big fan of basketball. And a few years ago, um, well, maybe none of us would have heard of this, but maybe some of us will. Um, there, was a, there was a few months in the NBA, uh, the professional league in America, where uh, a man from a Chinese background called Jeremy Lin um, took over the NBA, basically. Um, he had some incredible performances. He had some 
uh, game-winning shots that went viral. And he became a national media mensa- uh, sensation in the US. Uh, and the period was dubbed Linsanity um, after him. And what, humanly speaking, tipped this um, guy from our Mandarin-speaking congregation uh, to following the Lord Jesus was watching a YouTube series about Jeremy Lin's personal faith, and particularly about what knowing Jesus personally meant to Jeremy Lin, um, what difference he made in his day-to-day life, knowing him day by day, helping him overcome fear, and many other things. And that, for him, uh, clicked into place, um, all he'd been hearing, and he wanted to know the person of Jesus himself too. Real Hope Now is life with Jesus and by his spirit through his word and face to face forever uh, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And the question to Israel then is the same question to us now. Um, Do we want God or do we want gain? And the truth is life without God now is ultimately hopeless. And what hope do you have in the face of death? But there is real hope in life with Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Can these bones live? Our Father, thank you that you say they can, that by your spirit, through your word, you give us resurrection life with Jesus, which we can begin to enjoy now as we wait for the fullness of your new creation in the future. Please help us not to be so small-minded and shape our desires for personal gain now, which will not ultimately satisfy, but for your word, that we might maximize our life now for your glory. Amen. Uh, We'll start with a question from earlier in the series in Ezekiel. Uh, Someone's asking a question uh, about David being king and prince over God's people. It actually comes up in today's passage in verse 24 and 25. And the person asking the question says, we know this is talking about Jesus, so why is the name David there? How can we understand why it uses the name David, aside from that promise always being that the king would come from David's line? Why doesn't God just say Jesus at this point? Thank you, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like you, you gave the answer I would have given in your question already, um, which is that it's always been said that the Messiah would come um, from the promised line of David. I don't think I have anything more to say about that. I'm so sorry. It's just a, a symbolic way of talking about this, this promise, yeah. Mm. I think it, that's just the way God's chosen to communicate with us. I think we need to get used to it. <laughs> good. Uh, another question here about the sticks. Actually, several people asking about the sticks. There's a part of the passage we couldn't come to as someone's put it very clearly, what's the deal with the six? <laughs> Great. Ezekiel, if you read the whole book, is um, famous for these sign acts he does. This is the last one in the whole book. And the two sticks, well, uh, I'm going to just be rude. I said if you read it. But if the, the two sticks, and um, they represent the divided kingdom of Israel. So I'm, I'm terrible with numbers. But I think 300 years um, before this happened, um, the kingdoms were divided, they were split in two. A hundred years before this, the northern kingdom of Israel, known as Ephraim, um, they were uh, deported and defeated by Assyria, um, leaving the southern kingdom of Judah. And part of this promise, so just like the spirit is mentioned ten times in the first half of the passage, the word one uh, is mentioned ten times in the second half of the passage. And it's talking about the reunification of the people of Israel. It's saying all of God's people um, will be brought to salvation And if you um, want to think about that more, uh, in John chapter 4 in the New Testament or Acts chapter 8, it draws on these promises and says that isn't actually just a picture of unity of Israel, but it's it's a small picture then of unity of the whole world under the kingship of the Lord Jesus. So 
it's, trying to, it's, it's a picture and a promise of the unity that the UN can only hope for um, under the rule of King Jesus, in short. Yeah. Great, thank you very much. Uh, Lou, you said some stuff about the spirit and the word being inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. As someone's asking, are we not just reading in our own presupposition? Are we not just assuming that and reading it in? Um, well, I don't think so, For starting from the passage that we just read, where the vision has both of those things acting and the whole the notion of um, how the imagery of breathing and spirit works. But I think it's from the start of the Bible. So if you went to Genesis chapter 1, you'd see the spirit hovering over the waters uh, and then God saying and God speaking things into existence and working together. And that's how the Bible writers understand it. So I think it's um, Psalm 33 verse 6. Um, if you wanted to think about more, turns uh, says, speaking of creation, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath or spirit, same word, of his mouth, uh, all their hosts. So in that Hebrew parallelism, it's paralleling um, the word of God um, with the wind of God, the spirit of God, with the speech of God. We see that throughout the Bible. So in Acts, when the Holy Spirit uh, comes in power, the first thing they do is to speak. Um, so I don't think we're just reading. I think it's a pattern throughout the Bible. It's how the imagery of breathing and speech um, works and with the Holy Spirit. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. Would you have anything else to say on that, Tim? That sounded very helpful to me. Okay. Uh, someone's asked a very helpful question, which I have now. Oh, here we are. Uh, where are we in the picture, the prophecy of, of Ezekiel 37? Are some of us dry bones and some of us been made alive? Just, can you help us with that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, This is probably overly simplistic, but I think in short, um, the people of Israel are a a token or a a picture really of the whole world. um, We we learn from the national history of Israel uh, about the paradigms uh, and the way in which God will save all his people. And And the question was about, I'm so sorry. Where are we? Oh, where are we? So I think, at, where are we? Well, it depends where we are. Naturally speaking, uh, we're all like the dead bones. Um, without God, um, we will die. Um, or we aren't, um, and we will face him in judgment. Um, but if we've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, we attach ourselves uh, to those promises of God. So that's how the New Testament understands it. So if you uh, look at Romans 9 or Galatians 3, um, Maybe Galatians 3 is the clearest place, or maybe not the clearest, but one of them. Galatians 3 verse, is it 19? No. 29. Oh yeah, in 29, um, Galatians 3 is 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, um, as in you are the people of Israel as according to the promise. Um, so if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe Romans 10, if you're studying Romans this year, is clear actually. But um, if you believe in the promise that you share all the riches of Christ, you share all the riches of the promises that are made here by God's word. So we are the living bones if we're trusting in Jesus. That's right. Already. That's right. There you go. Very exciting. <laughs> uh, Someone's asked, there's lots of places in the Bible that teach that God brings resurrection life. Why do we need Ezekiel? Interesting question. Um, I mean, that is right. And sometimes people treat Ezekiel 37, and there's a couple of other passages in the prophets, like they're sort of bolt out of the blue in resurrection. Um, But 
right from the start of the Bible, the whole, the whole problem that's set up is the judgment of death. And we're waiting the whole way through uh, for the reversal uh, for life, uh, for eternal life. And that's picked up in the prophets. Uh, we see that Abraham believed that when he told the sacrifice his son. The whole picture of Israel going into slavery uh, and Egypt is pictured as a death and a national rebirth as they come out um, into the promised land. That's the, actually the language that Ezekiel alludes to here. And um, why, why do we need this passage? I guess it, it's a good question. I think this section of Ezekiel, there are four, there are four uh, words from God about his promise of salvation. So we, we've looked at them apart from the last one, which was about the sticks. Um, so there's a new leader, there's um, uh, a new land to come, there's new life and there's a new heart. And I think the sort of rhetorical purpose of this vision is to, is to press home the seriousness of it all. It's not just some um, sort of pop song, uh, some nice hope that makes us feel good about ourselves. And the vision and the explanation is meant to really draw home that we're in a really bad situation, uh, but God's promises are really good and can really solve uh, the problem of death. And I think that's what it's um, helping us to do. Yeah. And I think often when we come to the Bible, if we're not used to the things the Bible teaches, every new passage has something completely brand new and we're very excited and as we start to understand more of the things the Bible says, we start to try and look for something completely novel, when actually often God is saying some really big things lots of times in the Bible. And one of the really helpful things to do is to explore how he says it. And what he says in Ezekiel 37 is very different from how he talks about resurrection elsewhere in the Bible. And God has given this to us because we need this as well. Go away and picture yourself in that valley of dry bones. You won't find a passage like that elsewhere in the Bible. And it will be a powerful way of helping us to appreciate what God is offering to us in the gospel, uh, even though you get lots of other passages that have other kind of angles on this same resurrection promise. I don't think that the goal of looking at a passage of the Bible is to skip to the summary at the end. How God tells us is a really important part of how he's communicating with us. Various questions then, uh, just uh, two or three questions before we, we finish uh, and have a song. Uh, more about sort of how we're thinking this through, what it looks like in day-to-day -day life. I say one person is asking, I really struggle to feel I am a regenerated person by the words of Jesus. What does it feel like to be a regenerated person who has uh, been given life now in Jesus? Martin, that'd be a good thing to talk about um, if people around you afterwards. Um, what does it feel like? Um, it depends what you mean by feel. I mean, I'm not sure there's, any, there's not any special physical feeling um, if that's what we mean. I only say that because I think I was taught that uh, growing up, and that's quite um, damaging and confusing. Um, what, does it, what does it feel like? Well, I think um, as we really begin to believe what God says, to take him at his word, um, it does feel, um, I don't know, you feel a real security, well, I can speak for myself, you feel a real security in knowing um, you're known and loved by God, that there is, a, there is something beyond the grave. There's a person beyond the grave, the person of Jesus Christ, who welcomes us into his arms at death. And there's so many reassurances for lots of situations in life. When things seem to not be the way we want them to be, and we know God is in control of all things, and that's a great comfort. Tim, you must have a few things to say about that. I think it. what you said about, about the fact that it, it doesn't necessarily feel like a particular thing. I think sometimes we can think the Spirit is associated with particular emotions. 
And very rarely is that in any way connected to things the Bible says. I mean, there is a, a, a Romans 8 lots of us have looked at recently, speaks of groaning. I don't think people think groaning is the experience of the Spirit, and yet that's in the Bible. It could be joy. It could be any number of different things. And rather than asking, do I have an emotional response that tells me I'm regenerated? I think the question to be asking is, do I trust in the Lord Jesus? Am I seeking to follow him? And in that case, I can be confident that God has done a regenerative work in me. I have been given new life, and I want to seek to keep bringing my emotions in line with what the Spirit tells me in his word. I mean, having said that, I completely agree. I mean, it doesn't mean that I never have... I think I do have emotional responses to things. I mean, when you read a passage in the Bible and you're really uh, convicted, uh, and, you know, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Um, and sometimes, I think, with the help of God's Spirit, I really mourn. Um, some of my sin and some of the, and it's, it is an emotional experience and there's joy and good things as well but it doesn't mean just say there's no um, physical feelings doesn't mean there aren't real emotional reactions to the truths of God's word. Yeah. You talked a bit about how the um, how you've been grown by God's word as someone said what you said about that was really compelling can you say more about how you have grown in the last they've said five years I imagine you can pick whatever time period you want uh, how, you, how you've grown as you've got to know God more in his word. I have to ask my wife if that's definitely true. I think it is, but she'd, um, she'd probably give a better answer. I, how do I know it's definitely true? I think, well, I th- it's hard to, these things, well, in my life anyway, I think happen quite slowly and over time, but some things I think about myself five or ten years ago, I mean, some of us, most of us might have studied Mark's gospel in the last few years, and you see the, the Lord Jesus, how much he values his people, particularly in Mark 9. And I think, I, I think he has changed me in the way I value um, brothers and sisters and the Lord Jesus. I want to care for them. I really care about their welfare. I think I am a little bit, a little, it's a long way to go, a little bit less selfish, a little bit less self-absorbed. I care about that. I care more about some of my um, close family and close friends, and they don't know the Lord Jesus, and I care more about them hearing about him than I ever have before. I think I'm more confident uh, in that I'm known by God, that I'm loved by him, as I learn more things uh, about him. Well, those are some things. I don't know about you. That's very helpful. Thank you. And then a last question. You said earlier about how all of this hangs on the resurrection. I mean, essentially, if, if that didn't happen, if this isn't true, then the whole evening has been a waste of time. So someone's asked, what is the most compelling reason that convinces you Christianity is true? Oh, I mean, the, the truth is that the, what's most compelling probably changes uh, from time to time. But I think in terms of um, the word of God, I think there's three, there's three things in the Bible that I find um, really compelling. One is the fact that, so again, people sometimes talk like Jesus is a bolt out of the blue. Um, no one is thinking about this whole resurrection thing. We've just seen tonight that hundreds of years before he came, um, prophets are speaking about the individual resurrection of people from graves, which he fulfills. Jesus fulfills, and actually as we read more of the Old Testament, um, it's not just sort of random proof text, but more and more you see he genuinely does. Um, he is what's been waiting for and is fulfilled in the Old Testament. So there's um, what points to him of that. And then, I, I mean, just reading the Gospels um, and seeing the life and the teaching of Jesus um, in uh, Sunday morning, this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 6, and we've actually spent a few mornings just looking at a few sentences of Jesus' teaching. And I think that 2,000 years later, that actually, well, maybe not everyone, but most of us are captivated listening 
to what he has to say um, is a big proof. And I guess another thing is what I said earlier, that um, actually Jesus interprets the world for us. And um, this whole thing we've seen that actually sometimes uh, we do realize we're in a really tough and really bad situation. Yeah, I'm so quick to I know, watch the next TV program, not really think about it, care about little things in life. I mean, the Bible literally cuts me in half and knows exactly what I'm like. Um, so I guess the life of Jesus, the Bible's knowledge of me, how it speaks of him hundreds of years in the past, those would be some reasons. Too many compelling reasons to just pick one. I won't force you to pick one, but why not ask <laughs> the person sat next to you when we're done what they think the most compelling reason is? We're going to wrap up there. Thank you, Luke, very much. Um, I'm going to ask you to lead us in prayer, and then we'll stand to sing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for the Lord Jesus, um, for his death in our place, for his resurrection and the hope to come, and the gift of his um, spirit now that we can know him. Um, help us to be more and more convinced of um, these truths, that we might enjoy life with him more, and hold on to the end and eternal life with him. Amen. Amen. Oh,